How is life going for you now? Are you struggling? Under pressure? Afraid? Feel like you fight one battle after another? Hi, I'm Yvonne Brent from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And in today's lesson, I've got some encouragement for you as we look at the book of Joshua, nine lessons on how to fight and win in the battles of life. The first step to winning the battles of life is to realize that you're in a battle. The Bible describes the Christian life in this way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, just as I do. And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in worldly affairs, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. This is very different than many contemporary ideas of the Christian life today, where people think it's just going to be easy and they accept Jesus as their Savior because they want to go to heaven when they die and they want everything to be perfectly happy. But that view simply isn't true. The book of Joshua can help us, and Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, this is what he said in, the comment- in his commentary on Joshua. A merely nominal profession is easy enough to make and to maintain after the manner of the, ho- of the times, but to be a Christian indeed, through and through, to eat and drink and sleep eternal life, to live the life of God on earth, this is the work. This is the difficulty. As soon as you are washed in Christ's blood and clothed in his righteousness, you must begin to hew your way through a lane of enemies right up to the eternal throne. Every foot of the way will be disputed. Not an inch will Satan yield to you. You must continue daily to fight. These battles are actually part of the process of what we call sanctification. Now, let me take a few minutes to explain this in case you're not familiar with this idea or to review it if you are. Sanctification is defined as being set apart for God's use. As relating to the Christian life after we're justified or made right with God, After we trust Jesus to be our Savior, we then begin the journey of sanctification, where God intends for us to grow and become more and more like Jesus. This is a process that will not be complete in this life. This is what the battle consists of, and it will continue through all of our life. Now, just as the experience of the Exodus was a picture of salvation from sin, the book of Joshua is a picture of sanctification, both in what to do and also what not to do. The book of Joshua opens in this way. After 40 years of wandering, Israel finally gets to enter the promised land. Moses died, however, just before they entered the promised land, but he passed on the leadership to Joshua. God was giving them the land, but, and this is what's so important, they still had to fight for it. We can learn from what they did well and how they failed to help us in our battles. 
Here's our plan. We have nine lessons from the book of Joshua on how to fight and win in the battles of life. Lesson one, God's blessings often include challenges. Lesson two, successful battle plans must be founded on God's word. Lesson three, trust that God goes before you to prepare for victory. Lesson four, make sure of your foundational and complete obedience. Lesson five, do things God's way no matter what. Lesson six, if you disobey and sin, deal with it. Lesson seven, don't trust appearances, always seek God's will. Lesson eight, quitting the battle too soon can have unimaginable negative consequences. And lesson nine, never let age or any other excuse cause you to drop out of the battle. Finish strong. Let's now look at each of these in more detail. Lesson number one, God's blessings often include challenges. One of the most important things to learn in the Christian life is to not be surprised at troubles and challenges or to think we've had enough of them. God, you know, I had this trial, I had this challenge, I had this, I had that, I'm done. No, we can't ever think that. The children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt, and they wandered for 40 years. After all that, the new generation still had seven years of bloody battles ahead of them. When we face yet another challenge, we often ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Well, there are two major reasons from the Bible. Reason number one, our trials and challenges help grow us to Christian maturity. In James 1, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, in other words, trials of many kinds, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, what we really need to understand here, and how this relates to Christian maturity, is we need to understand the real meaning of the word perfect. It's the word teleos in Greek. Now, it doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean that you're to become some idealized, perfect, never-sinning person. What it does mean is it means complete in mental and moral character, brought to its end, finished, complete. Trials and challenges enable us to become complete spiritually, to become mature. That's what perfect means. We talk about perfecting someone like perfecting a loan or whatever. It means to finish it off, to be mature in our faith and trust. We might still sin, but it is t- there, all of our trials are helping us become more perfect, more mature, more complete. Rick Warren sums it up in this way. He says, why doesn't God just take away all your problems? He says, because God uses tough times to grow your character. If you never had any problems, your persistence, determination, diligence, and patience would never have a chance to grow. God's work in your life during hard times makes having these character traits possible. Be thankful instead of resentful, that God cares enough to take you through the growing times.
Now the second reason is so that we can comfort others. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. We always need to remember our sufferings are not just about us. People are watching. People are learning from what we do. Not only people, but there's also, not only people on earth, I should say, but there's also a spiritual audience. Remember the story of Job. He had everything, but one day Satan challenged God and said, Does Job serve God for nothing? It's a rather scary thought when you think about it, that we might lose what is precious to us or be tempted in some horrific way to show Satan, and we and ourselves and others, whatever spiritual audiences there might be, that no matter what, we will affirm that we serve a good God, that we won't just serve God, that we won't just thank God, that we won't just praise God when everything's going great. I was hearing someone the other day saying, oh, how God bless this person and bless this person and bless this person, and how they were such a great witness. And I thought, yeah, if I had all the stuff they had, I could, you know, be a great witness too. Now, I admit I had a bit of a bad attitude, but seriously, It's easy to praise God when everything is going well. But what do we do when times are difficult? And remember too in the story of Job that on this earth, in his earthly pilgrimage, he never knew why he went through what he went through. He did not know that the focus of all of heaven was on him. He didn't know that. He simply, at the end of the book, had an encounter with God, and that was enough. It isn't popular to say that God might allow horrid things, and that you'll never on earth know why. But that's reality. If in the midst of our tears we can say, I believe you are a good God, and if we can say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we can say when times are hardest, I know my Redeemer lives. What an incredible witness that will be that you trust God no matter what. And someday, your joy over that time of gut-wrenching trust will be worth it. Lesson number two. Successful battle plans must be founded on God's word. In Joshua 1, 7-9, it says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 
We must know God's word to do what is right when we are confronted with challenges, because there will always be, quote-unquote, human ways to get what we want that will seem easier and more appealing, but that will not result in the spiritual growth through the trial that will result if we do it according to God's way. Now, to be able to respond to battles according to God's word, you've got to know God's word. I know this is something I, I teach and I talk about again and again and again, but it is so true. Again, both the overall picture of what pleases God and what doesn't, as well as the specifics of what he wants us to do and not to do. This is especially important these days as there is a loss of common decency and morality in our culture and media. And when we see spiritual leaders falling and doing things that are wrong, or even maybe not messing up in a huge way, but still doing things that aren't biblically correct, people get confused. And we've got to know what God's Word says. We need to know His standards really well ahead of time. This is important too. So we don't have to stop and ask, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? For example, God says, do not lie. If you are confronted with a business opportunity and, oh, if you just fudge the truth a little bit, you have the opportunity to make a huge amount of money. You should not have to stop and think, should I or shouldn't I? God says, don't lie. Don't lie. Don't do that. And sometimes I know I've been accused of being way too black and white on things. And it's like, yeah, I am. Where God's word is is really clear on many things. To use an old analogy, the federal agents that work for counterfeit crimes, they don't focus all their time studying all the different varieties and the possibilities of counterfeit currency. They say that they, they study real currency. They know what it looks like down to the most minute detail. They study the real thing so that when something is presented to them that isn't, they know it right away. And that's how well we should know God's word so that if something comes up in our life that does not line up with it, we immediately know. Lesson number three, trust that God goes before you to prepare for the victory. Now, 40 years earlier, when the spies went into the land, they were afraid of the people. But when they actually got around to doing it, they found that the people were afraid of them. Now, remember the story of Jericho. Joshua sends out the spies. Rahab hides them. And before they leave, she says, Before the spies went down for the night, the woman came up to them on the roof and said, I know that God has given you the land. We're all afraid. Everyone in the country feels hopeless. We heard how God dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you left Egypt, and what he did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you put under a holy curse and destroyed. We heard it, and our hearts sank. We all had the wind knocked out of us, all because of you, you and your God, your God, the God of the heavens above and the God of the earth below. For the last 40 years, the people of Canaan that they were afraid of had been trembling in fear because of them.
Application. If God calls you to do something, He's prepared resources. Your audience, many things you won't see until you step out in faith. And in addition, God often has people who are ready and willing to help you. As Mr. Rogers says, not a totally biblical example, but I think it applies, he said, look for the helpers. They usually are there. Now, they may be unlikely ones that God will put in your path, perhaps for you to change their lives as they're helping you. So keep your eyes open. For example, people like Rahab. She was a prostitute. She helped the spies. And in that whole interaction, not only did she help them, did they live, but she became an ancestor of Jesus and a woman who is commended for her faith with the other heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Now then, lesson number four. Make sure of your foundational and complete obedience. After the spies returned from visiting Jericho, before they could fight, all the males who had grown up since leaving Egypt needed to be circumcised. Circumcision was the sign given to Abraham that they were God's people, but they hadn't done it in 40 years. They also celebrated the Passover, remembering God's deliverance. Now, application on foundational obedience for all of us. Where are you in foundational areas of obedience? Most important, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? If you've done that, have you been baptized? Next, are you part of a body of believers? Are you as obedient as you can be to what you know to do? You can't expect God's help in larger battles if you aren't obedient in the foundational ones. Lesson number five, do things God's way no matter what. The children of Israel were told to destroy everything in Jericho. Achan, however, coveted some of the spoils. He took them, he hid them, and because of that sin, Israel lost in the next battle. Many men died. We can't pick and choose how we obey God. Not only we alone, but others may suffer because of it. Many died, including Achan and his family, because he thought he could get away with disobeying God. Now, when this happens, very important, Lesson number six, if you disobey and sin, deal with it. Joshua cried out to the Lord, Oh, Jehovah, why have you brought us over the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? Why weren't we content with what we had? Why didn't we stay on the other side? Oh, Lord, what am I to do now that Israel has fled from her enemies? For when the Canaanites and the other nearby nations hear about it, they will surround us and attack us and wipe us out. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? How does God respond to that? It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up off your face. Israel has sinned and disobeyed my commandment and has taken loot when I said it was not to be taken. And they have not only taken it, they lied about it and have hidden it among their belongings. That is why the people of Israel are being defeated. That is why your men are running from their enemies. They are cursed. I will not stay with you any longer unless you completely rid yourselves of this sin. God didn't want Joshua to wallow in regret and sadness, whatever. He told him, you know, get up off your face and deal with it. Application. When things go badly, when you sin, when you mess up, when you experience consequences, pause pray, 
ask God if any sin is involved, if you honestly don't know. Sometimes difficult trials are to grow you, but sometimes you've done something stupid spiritually or morally or whatever, and you know it when you think about it. So make that decision first of all. If you're disappointed with yourself, your sin, your habits, whatever the issue is, get up off your face and deal with it no matter how hard that might be. In 1 John 1, 9, remember it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess, but then we must accept God's forgiveness and move on. We need to get up off our face and get back into the battle. Don't wallow. Don't throw a pity party or think that God can never use you again. You may have been quite horrible recently or in the past or whatever, but excessive wallowing, excessive moaning and groaning and all kinds of that, repenting, whatever, it can be an excuse, a reason to hide and not be part of the battle. Now there's two helpful quotes at this time. uh, Ellen Redpath said, no sin which we are capable of committing, has ever taken God by surprise, for he knew we were just like that. And C.S. Lewis said, I think that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is almost like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than him. And remember, forgiveness isn't about us being worthy of his forgiveness. We can't repent enough, wallow enough, confess enough, do enough penance. It's not about us. We will never, never have been, never will be worthy of his forgiveness. We simply aren't. God used Moses after he murdered a man, Peter after he denied him, Paul to build his church after he tried his hardest to destroy it. It's not that we aren't as bad as any of them, or that any of us deserve forgiveness more than they did. The point is, our God is eternally gracious and as merciful and as much the God of second chances to us today as he always has been. So get up off your face and back into the battle. Lesson 7. Don't trust appearances. Always seek God's will. In chapter 9 of Joshua, there's this kind of weird little story of the Gibeonite deception. This is where these people who lived nearby, and you can't blame them, they didn't want to be destroyed, so they pretended they were from really far away, and they uh, had they uh, wore really worn out clothes and brought worn out wineskins and all this kind of stuff. They asked for peace. They said, oh, we're from a long, long distance away. And they asked for peace, and the leaders of Israel granted it. They didn't stop to ask God for discernment. Then they found out they were close by, and they were obligated then to fight for them, and they had continuing troubles because of them for generations to come. The application here, always take time to seek God's will, no matter how much pressure you are under. There will almost always be a time pressure to do something quickly. And in fact, it seems like the more important something is, the less we will want to wait on God and we feel like we just have to do it, we have to do it, we have to do it. To wait, to not wait, in reality, means oftentimes you don't trust God. 
And sadly, there will also often be people who will pressure you to act too quickly. Decide now. Don't do it. Always. If things don't feel right, if you don't have peace, if you don't know the answer, no matter how good something looks or how bad or whatever, don't act on it until you know what God wants. Lesson number eight. Quitting the battle too soon can have unimaginable negative consequences. They didn't drive out the Canaanites completely. In passage after passage, they quit too soon. Here's just one example. There was none of the Anakims, in other words, the giants, left in the land of the children of Israel, except only in Gaza, Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. In other words, they got rid of a lot of the giants, except in these three cities. Well, these and other pockets of the Canaanites that were left were a source of sin and misery throughout their history. Remember Goliath, who David fought, was from Gath. And what's really sad, you look on a map, and still today, these cities are a problem. The Gaza Strip has been a source of contentious conflict for centuries. And in the Middle East, even today, there are battles. They didn't take care of business back then, and people are still suffering. If you're looking at the video, I have a picture of a school that was recently, within the last number of years, destroyed in Gaza over continuing battles. A contrasting example I want to give you, though, of how to finish well. Instead of quitting too soon, this is a wonderful story on finishing well. It happened in the 1968 Olympics. During the Olympic marathon, a Tanzanian runner, Akwari, cramped up due to the high altitude of Mexico City. Because of that, he fell very badly early in the race. He wounded his knee, he dislocated, and injured his shoulder. But he kept running and he finished last. The winner of the marathon finished in a little over two hours. It took him three and a half hours. There were only a few people left in the stadium, and the sun had sent when he kept when he came limping over the finish line. As he finally crossed the line, a cheer came from the small crowd, and when he was interviewed and asked why he continued running, he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Our application. It's often near the end of a big project or difficult trial that we want to quit. It is that last 10% that is the hardest, the one more final draft, the last correction, the additional thing added to a ministry outreach. We are exhausted and tempted to think it's good enough. But that is often the time to press through, press ahead, do the one more thing that needs to be done to do all we know the Lord wants us to do. What if, think about this, What if Jesus had lived his perfect life, healed and preached, but he didn't go to the cross? He finished what he came to do. He finished his race. We are also called to finish our race. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy 
set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Speaking of Jesus, as this passage in Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured. May we do the same. Lesson number nine, never let age or any other excuse cause you to drop out of the battle. Finish strong. Caleb was one of the spies who trusted God when they first came to the land, and now he's ready to fight 40 years later when he says, Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years, so here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. And he did! As it goes on to say, Hebron has belonged to Caleb ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And the passage goes on. I just love this little parenthetical thought here. It says, Hebrew used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. That meant he was the biggest, baddest, worst giant there. But Caleb finished the battle when others quit. He went for the city that, again, the biggest, baddest giant who lived, lived in that city at that time, and he defeated him when he was 85 years old. Other Israelites ran away. They allowed the giants to live among them to their later pain and regret. Caleb, continue to obey God in the same way he had as a young man. Application. Age, any age, is irrelevant to the eternal people called to serve God. That's all of you. You are never too young to begin to do great things for God. You are never too busy in middle age. You are never too old to do what God wants you to do in your dreams, in your obedience, in your calling in the kingdom of God. In review, the nine lessons that we've looked at from the book of Joshua. Lesson number one, God's blessings often include challenges. Lesson two, successful battle plans must be founded on God's word. Lesson three, trust that God goes before you to prepare for victory. Lesson number four, make sure of your foundational and complete obedience. Lesson number five, do things God's way no matter what. Lesson six, if you disobey and sin, deal with it. Lesson seven, don't trust appearances, always seek God's will. Lesson eight, quitting the battle too soon can have unimaginable negative consequences. Lesson nine, never let age or any other excuse cause you to drop out of the battle. Finish strong. Some final words of encouragement from Matthew Henry. We should not pray so much for the removal of an affliction as for wisdom to make the right use of it. We only bear the cross for a while, but we shall wear the crown to eternity.
May we all be strong in our battles, so that we can say like Paul at the end of his life, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Remember these lessons from the book of Joshua. Determine to finish strong and fight well the battles the Lord gives you for your good and His glory. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.